Well, welcome to the first episode of the Spencer Fernando Show. I'm really pleased to have Darshan Maharaja here today. Uh, if you've been following his writing on darshanmaharaja.com and, uh, you know, following him on Twitter, he's really sharing a lot of opinions that have been, I think, you know, needed in this country and from a perspective that we really haven't heard before in Canada. And so I'm really pleased to have him here as the first guest. And Darshan, maybe just introduce yourselves to people and uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Spencer, for having me on your first show. It's uh, really nice that you have started this uh, video podcast. And there is definitely a, a great unmet need for independent voices. Legacy media is not uh, uh, giving people everything that they want to give, which is why I started putting out my ideas. The website is actually darshanmaharaja.ca. And, uh, Perfect. Yeah, and I, I put out my uh, experiences of similar uh, events or uh, phenomena in other countries and uh, correlate them to what's happening in Canada. And that I think adds a dimension to uh, people's understanding of the current issues in Canada, because as the saying goes, there is nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. So if we uh, know what other people faced and in other times and what they did and what the consequences were, then definitely it adds to our um, better assessment of the situation at hand. And uh, that is basically my primary motivation for uh, writing and putting my ideas out. By education, I'm a chartered accountant. I've lived in a few countries, so there is more experiences that I can share, mm -hmm. including in uh, dictatorships and former uh, Soviet Union countries. Mm -hmm. So and that's a that's a pretty valuable mix, in my opinion, of uh, the experiences that I can bring to compare with the current affairs in Canada. That's so that's yeah. about myself in brief. Which countries have you lived in? Uh, well, I grew up in India at a time when India was avowedly socialist. Yeah. And uh, then I lived in uh, Kenya for about six years. I also lived in the United Arab Emirates. And the company there had a sister unit in Kazakhstan. So I had to go there oftentimes uh, for work-related purposes. And uh, there is a fair bit of exposure to how people who had just come out of a totalitarian state think, including the hangovers that they have from the totalitarian system mm -hmm. and what their aspirations were in terms of freedom. It was a very uh, educative experience to see those two uh, contradictory emotions side by side in the same person. Mm -hmm. So with all of that in mind, were you watching uh, Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland, uh, their announcement yesterday? Yeah, I've seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not many Canadians know mm -hmm. that, but uh, mm -hmm. in 1975, uh, the then Prime Minister of India, uh, Indira Gandhi, she suspended the constitution. So all the what we call charter rights in India, they're called fundamental rights. Okay. They were suspended. And the abuses that took place for about 20 months. Thankfully, she made a huge miscalculation, probably because she was surrounded by yes men. Mm -hmm. 
thinking she was so popular that she could win an election. So she called an election and then went on to lose it. <laughs> so that's how status quo anti was restored in India. But for 20 months, India was a totalitarian state. And uh, the abuses that took place, because what happens is uh, similar to the Emergency Act measures, oversight gets removed. There is absolutely no appeal or even internal process when there is a complaint against someone. There is no internal process that ascertains whether the complaint is uh, tenable or not. So complaint straight away leads to punishment. Mm. And that's what I saw yesterday, you know, coming into place in Canada where, for example, if someone has reason to believe that you have uh, shady financial transactions, straight away your financial life can be thrown out of gear mm -hmm. with no vetting of the complaint or no oversight uh, to determine the worth of the complaint. Straight away there is a consequence. This can lead to uh, settling of personal scores, which happened on a mass scale in India at the time. In fact, after she was defeated, uh, Mrs. Gandhi was dragged through a whole process of, uh, uh, you know, inquiry and uh, ultimately she was, I believe, jailed. I'm not very clear on that, but she was sentenced to jail. And again, it was a personal emergency that was declared as a national emergency. Mm -hmm. What happened problem was, for her. yeah, in yeah. the election that took place before, mm -hmm. she had used state machinery to campaign, which is specifically prohibited by law in India. Mm -hmm. So one of her competitors went to court saying her election should be declared null and void. And regardless of what we think of third world countries, a lot of Canadians look down their noses on third world countries. In this mm -hmm. case, the judiciary remained independent and the high court judge uh, of the state where the complaint was in Uttar Pradesh, he declared her election null and void. So she would have, she was no longer an MP. She couldn't continue as the prime minister. Mm -hmm. That was her personal emergency. <laughs> she made it a national she declared emergency. A national emergency mm -hmm. suspended the constitution to remain in power. But then what happened was the entire state machinery throughout the country was thrown out of gear because there was no oversight mm -hmm. to whatever the officials were doing. And uh, a lot of uh, disturbing cases came out. I mean, they must have numbered in the thousands. So we don't want that kind of a situation to happen in a country like Canada. I mean, this is a third world country and we are talking about roughly 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Today, I doubt if it can happen there also. Yeah. So we are setting the clock behind on our evolution as a society by declaring this emergency. I have maintained from the start that the protest protesters should have been listened to. They should have been negotiated with. Doesn't matter if they have far out extreme demands. An able negotiator can uh, you know, bring them out of that, maybe provide them a way out so that they don't uh, cut a sorry figure in front of their supporters. That's mm -hmm. what being a good diplomat or a good negotiator should mean. But there has been no attempt on the contrary, uh, you know, from the word go 
they were being called names first they were a fringe minority with unacceptable views and then that that quickly morphed into occupying forces and insurrectionists and mm. laying siege <laughs> to the capital yeah. so that kind of uh, you know incendiary language was not conducive to a negotiated settlement that was clear and unfortunately your legacy media also was mainly retransmitting those messages instead of providing independent analysis and input so the atmosphere was built up where this was like a foregone conclusion although we may not like it that was the only course of action open yeah it's interesting how trudeau went basically from no, like nothing to full full action right no negotiation no discussion no even willingness to hear what anyone who is opposed to him thinks he went from doing absolutely nothing to you know full-on emergency powers which you know i think a lot of people including myself probably feel that this you know is this is what he wanted he wanted kind of a pretext and an ex excuse to impose emergency powers and he knew that he wouldn't get that unless you know the situation got to the point where he could say oh look i have to step in and take control and if he had negotiated and been respectful then that wouldn't have been necessary but here we are yeah and even the legal situation is not very clear to me now i have mm -hmm. no background in canadian law or any country's law for that matter but uh, i understand that the civil liberties union has uh, lodged a complaint against the invocation of the emergency act and again from the limited understanding that i have i think the province has to request that we are either unable to handle the situation or that this, we don't have the resources and then the resources are provided by the federal government this is in relation to things happening within the country if it's an external threat then that's a different situation but again because my uh, background is not in this kind of law so i'm not very clear on that but what i'm seeing is and you know i have been focusing on this one particular aspect in many situations which is how does this look like at the point of implementation because regardless of all the justifications or rebuttals that you can come up with it has to pass this test any government measure i first thought of this when vaccine passports were being talked about and dismissed as a conspiracy theory mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of conspiracy theories have turned <laughs> yeah. out to be true lately. It's interesting how yeah. that happens. Yeah. There's a meme floating out there saying, hey, you got any conspiracy theory to spare? I'm running out of mind because <laughs> they are all coming true. Yeah. So that's when I started thinking, how would this look on the point of implementation? Mm -hmm. And again, in this latest instance, I have the same question. If a bank decides that a customer's personal and banking account have to be frozen, then what is the recourse to the affected person who for all we know may be innocent mm -hmm. now uh, a related issue is uh, the uh, hack and release of the data from uh, gives and go mm -hmm. i know from someone whom i respect and uh, trust that uh, cbc is already contacting those people by email yeah, a few people shared it on, on Twitter, the messages they're getting from reporters saying, oh, why did you donate? Do you want to share your story? And yeah. So if the information is released illegally for CBC to use it, mm -hmm. does it become an illegal act? Now, this is legal nitty gritty. So again, I'll 
leave it to the legal minds to resolve. But as a layman, this is my question. And this is our public broadcaster. Mm -hmm. Let's remember that. It's not a private entity that is, you know, maybe with a profit motive or getting more clicks or whatever. They are chasing a hot story. This is our national broadcaster, which we normally expect to be a little more circumspect and mellow so? in its yeah. approach. And the double standard is interesting too, right? It's, you know, if you're against the establishment, then, you know, leaks are acceptable. But if you're for the establishment, then they're not, right? I mean, we saw what happened in the U.S. presidential election with the story of, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop, right? I mean, okay, that was, you know, some leaked information. And then the New York Post wanted to do a story and they got kicked off Twitter, right? And so right. Well, you, that, you can't talk about that, apparently. But, you know, you have this story. Oh, I guess the leak is against people who the government doesn't like. So it's okay to expose their information and go after them. And it's just, it's such a double standard. And we've seen it in, in relation to protests. I was reading an article you wrote and you talked about, I think, a story in India where, uh, I think it was the 60s or 70s when they were still using, you know, phone lines and, and wires could get crossed. Yes. And you had uh, a pro two protests took place simultaneously. One where the government was in power in the, the local area and one where they weren't and they sent their messages so in the area where they were in power it was a totally illegitimate protest and unacceptable and in the, in the area where they they weren't in power the protest was you know a sign of freedom and it was great and very important but <laughs> yes. they accidentally switched which party you know group they sent it to and so each one had kind of the contradictory message and that kind of it's it as you say it's it's very similar to what we see today where it's you know Tearing down statues was fine, you know, blockading railways was fine. You know, people were even trying to throw stuff at railway, uh, you know, vehicles and trains on the track. So that was all, all totally okay and Trudeau understood and they went and negotiated and talked to people. But all of a sudden it's a protest the government doesn't like and it's it's an insurrection, it's terrorism, it's it's this and that. And so it's it's almost as if they think that people don't notice the contradictions. And I'm wondering maybe if you could expand on, on what you think maybe the government is thinking, because either they, they don't think we notice it or they just don't care that we notice it. No, I think they know that partisanship runs so deep in our society that people mm -hmm. who support the government will support it no matter what. Yeah. So even when it is a glaringly apparent contradiction, you will find people, you know, taking resort to all the uh, excuses that have been trotted out and there is a well-oiled machinery that does this. First of all, some politician will make a statement, then some opinion maker or journalist whoever will write a piece and then every in every media outlet you will see mm -hmm. similar pieces coming out. There is not a single word of doubt, dissent or inquiry as to whether this stands a logical test or not. So it's a well-oiled machinery. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to individuals opining on that, usually on social media, they will borrow from that language and then uh, keep continuing as if, you know, there is no other argument against it. And this is, I think, uh, the biggest challenge that we face as a society. I was just thinking in the morning that, you know, we are stuck in issues. We are spending all our time on issues that don't add to global competitiveness of Canada. Mm -hmm. We are not producing any cutting edge technology. After uh, BlackBerry, we haven't done anything. And there are a few names I, uh, that come to mind. Canadarm is one. The Canadian mm -hmm. reactor is another. Avro Arrow 
was the most uh, advanced fighter aircraft in its time. Going back to the 19th century when Elijah McCoy uh, invented a drip cup for the machineries that were, you know, latest technology at the time and they had many moving parts and the lubricating oil had to come out in specific quantities over time. He invented that mm. and he, he was a black Canadian mm -hmm. and his impact is such that we still have the expression the real McCoy because there oh, were, there were many huh? counterfeit McCoys in the market. <laughs> wow. So people started saying is this the real McCoy? Mm -hmm. So the language still survives, right? Mm -hmm. Even after drip cups are no longer uh, in use. Mm -hmm. So we have been producing cutting edge technology for more than a century, mm -hmm. which is now no longer on the horizon. We are not uh, coming up with any groundbreaking research. Our educational standards, if you we see here in Ontario, uh, there is this EQAO test of school mm -hmm. children in grades three, six and nine. In grade six, uh, the most recent report that I have read said that more than half the students were uh, failing to achieve the provincial standard in math. Wow. Let me emphasize this. We are not comparing with any other high achieving country like mm -hmm. Singapore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have set our own standard and, and more than half the students are failing to meet that standard. And if you see the graph over the years, every time the report comes out, that ratio drops further and further down. So our education system is failing, our healthcare is crumbling itself together with duct tape. And uh, the same, again, this is another observation, which I think stands the test of time, that when an erroneous claim gets introduced in public debate, it can be either an outright lie or spin or whatever. It never goes away you cannot disprove it out of existence. Mm -hmm. So recently I was uh, listening to an interview of uh, an Ontario Conservative uh, MP at the provincial level. Mm -hmm. They were discussing healthcare and he said that, uh, you know, the previous Liberal government underfunded uh, healthcare. No, I mean, I've written an article on showing all the data saying healthcare in Canada is not underfunded. If anything, mm -hmm. it's maybe overfunded. Yeah, but uh, it never goes away. So that's the, you know, in terms of uh, public uh, perceptions, public policies setting, th these are the two main uh, contributors. One is the politicians and the other is the media. Mm -hmm. And they don't bring uh, quality uh, thoughts to the debate that are backed by facts. I'll give you another example. There is a former provincial MP of Ontario who appears as a regular guest on one of the biggest radio stations in uh, southern Ontario. So I was driving one day, I was listening to the radio and uh, he said that if we reduce our carbon footprint, we can alleviate smog in the streets <laughs> and lung disease. <laughs> now, smog in the streets is caused by particulate matter. This is a former provincial MP of Ontario. Right? And so far as I know, carbon dioxide doesn't cause any lung disease. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of uh, thoughts that are brought to the debate, which then informs the public on policy measures. 
and if people are not paying attention all these erroneous statements keep floating in the air like particulate matter all you guys trips yeah polluting the political sphere and even the host yeah. did not counter him no yeah, yeah the media doesn't counter that much when it's it's the the establishment talking to them they just kind of go along with it right exactly Yeah. So that's the biggest threat that I'm seeing. That we are uh, first of all, uh, you know, focused on things that don't add to our global competitiveness. And secondly, even in those debates, the ideas that come to the fore are uh, so substandard that in any other competitive society, they would be relegated to the background. Whereas mm-hmm. here we have them in the forefront. So that makes us. either a mediocrity or idiocracy one of the two maybe it's a mix <laughs> it's maybe a mix yeah but uh, it doesn't augur well for our future no it was it was funny you know when i was watching uh, christia freeland yesterday at one point she said you know we about truckers oh you need to be doing productive things not deliberately make not illegally making canada poor and mm-hmm. i kind of thought oh she she's kind of saying like that's our job it's our job to legally make canada poor because if you if you look at you know the gdp per capita and that that's something that never gets talked about you know you see they'll say oh gdp went up you know 2% this year okay but what if the population went up 2% well then you had no real actual growth right sure the economy's bigger because you added more people but that isn't better for any individual person and so our gdp per capita has been going down dramatically i think we're about you know 15 to 20,000 dollars per person behind the united states when not too long ago you know in most of our lifetimes in the harper era uh, we were about tied with the us and so that never gets talked about our country is becoming a lot poorer it's as you say you know we're not globally competitive the government seems to have decided that and this is kind of a taboo subject in canada sometimes but they seem to have decided that immigration is going to be how we grow all the time right so they're just going to bring in more and more people every year and that somehow equals economic growth and so that to me is you know I'm the son of an immigrant so you know people say well, you can't talk about immigration but we should of course all be allowed to talk about it but they seem to have decided that instead of productivity growth we're just going to have population growth and that's i don't think that actually helps people you know the average person right you know So I'm not sure what your thoughts are about that but we seem to have it's almost as if at some point our leaders decided this country has enough money we don't need to create wealth anymore we just need to redistribute it and that's always bad that's what they did in Venezuela oh we're rich enough with all the oil money we'll just start redistributing it and we saw where that ended up Yeah I remember you wrote about this uh, mm-hmm. you gave a very good numbers there mm-hmm. Basically you know immigration has become the holy grail I remember back in uh, 2016 I think it was early 2016 when uh, Trudeau had just been voted in and uh, the innovation and science minister Navdeep Bens his uh, first proposal as minister mm-hmm. was to increase immigration to 500000 mm-hmm. so i had two questions at that point mm-hmm. one is how is it that the innovation minister is encroaching on the territory of the immigration minister because we had Ahmed Hussain who was supposed to look after that <laughs> yeah. number one number two we already have immigration at that time i think it was around 350000 and he wanted it increased to 500000 so how does doing more of the same count as innovation <laughs> good question <laughs> our yeah. definitions are all messed up mm-hmm. right so you say anything against immigration if you happen to be white you are called a racist or xenophobe 
and if you are not white then and an immigrant then you will be accused of wanting to pull the ladder up behind you or they'll say self-hating or white supremacist adjacent or some foolish term like that right (laughs) (laughs) internalized racism is one of them uh, that is applied to me or that i want to pull the ladder up i have no interest in pulling the ladder up more the merrier but we already have uh, an acute housing shortage Healthcare, as I said, is held together by duct tape. We, uh, on the metrics, we are dead last or near dead last in almost every uh, area. Education is uh, crumbling. There is uh, infrastructure is in poor shape. So, you know, if you want to increase the number of people living here, well and good, but you have to then have uh, a plan to shore up the other areas also. This is like, you know, the marketing department of a trading company decides that it wants vastly more of X product because there is demand for it without consulting with the warehouse guy, whether you got space Mm -hmm. or without consulting with the finance guy, whether the bank will lend the finance for temporary period, like three months until the cash comes in. Mm-hmm. Without confirming with uh, personnel as to whether we can hire that many people more, you know, they just order and then the trucks are lined up outside with uh, deliveries and everything is haywire. That's the kind of immigration policy that we have. Yeah. And speaking against it is uh, one of the taboo subjects like the many and that is where the test of a society is. How many uh, issues are off limits for discussion? Mm. There have to be some. Yeah. For example, anti-Semitism is not allowed. I mean, Mm. if you want to bring an anti-Semitic point to the debate, you will be rightly shut out Mm. or similar issues, you know, but then how many? And secondly, what is the role of the state? Because I think we are now rapidly becoming more and more statist. For sure. A lot of people believe that the government should be in charge of more and more things that are normally provided products or services by private enterprise. For example, the demand for universal pharma care. I mean, look at the performance of universal healthcare over 50 years and you can see the disaster we are inviting there. You don't want people uh, to be waiting for life-saving medication the way they are now waiting for life-saving treatment. So these are all the issues that should be at the front and center of the debate, but other than people like you and I, nobody is bringing them to the debate. Yeah, it's always so interesting, you know, like as you say, anyone who criticizes immigration levels, you know, they get attacked. But, you know, we we should almost flip it around, you know, talk to someone, okay, so... They say, oh, we just need more and more immigration and then say to them, OK, let's bring in 10, 10 million people next year. And they'd say, oh, well, wait a minute, that that, that might be a bit too much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you, you don't like immigrants. You hate you hate immigration. Why are you so bigoted and, and oppressive? And so it's interesting, right? You know, the fact that we don't have these debates, it kind of makes those absurdities never really get discussed. Right. It's that there's only a very narrow bound. You can you can talk about it. And so if you if you're pro more immigration then you never have to explain yourself it's just that's accepted as just a truth right oh more immigration always good and if you're anti-immigration you basically don't get any any place in the discussion 
And what's so interesting is, you know, you look at the polls and, you know, when, when they poll Canadians on, you know, the increased immigration under the Trudeau government, it's about 50-50. A lot of people, about half the country, are against, you know, the increased immigration levels. And I would expect that within the Conservative Party, that's probably 75-80%. And even the Conservative Party doesn't want to go there. So I wonder if, if you maybe have insight as to why there are issues where, you know, in half the country might believe something but it still doesn't get talked about and you know the majority of the opposition party might believe something but even they're afraid to talk about it what do you think is is caused that here and what do you think could be done uh, maybe to remedy that there are two issues here one is when people answer a question in a poll is mm. different from what they think about it at election time mm. <laughs> and uh, Conservatives have a very fundamental problem of uh, image deficit. I've written about this. So they get painted as racist. So for them to propose that we will either curtail immigration or, uh, you know, not increase it further, mm -hmm. it plays to their disadvantage. So they keep mum about it. Secondly, uh, all politics is local. So when it comes to Greater Toronto Area, all the local candidates will be backed by people who back more immigration. Mm -hmm. And this applies across the board. I'm not mm -hmm. singling out any party here. This applies across the board. So any person who has a different view on immigration will not get the backing to be nominated as the candidate of the party. Now, nomination itself is a whole murky issue and uh, you, know, you can talk about it at length. Yeah. But uh, so from the grassroots, uh, you know, you get people who are in favor of more immigration as the party's candidates, regardless of who wins, mm -hmm. which party wins the riding. In the parliament, you will have an overwhelming majority that is pro-immigration. Mm -hmm when you look at the seat distribution between Alberta and Southern Ontario, I mean, yeah, the guys who will want to revisit the immigration issue will be from Alberta and they'll be called racist. So that's why the policy on immigration is at wide variance with the opinion polls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like that's the case for a lot of issues and, you know, it's I've said to other people before, there's kind of a strange phenomenon in Canada where it's the Liberals and NDP, they campaign on giving their supporters what they want, and they often do, right? They, they keep their promises, even if the promises are terrible policies. But the Conservatives spend most of their time telling their own supporters why they can't really give them anything they want, right? Like much of the debate in Canada within the Conservative Party is factions of the Conservative Party telling their base, oh, we can't give you this, uh, we can't do that, we can't do that for you. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. No, we can't do that. But still, give us your money and, and still vote for us at election time. And it's a very odd dynamic. I think it's it may be starting to break a bit with what happened with Aaron O'Toole. I think he he went even too far in that direction. You know, He didn't want to give the conservative base really anything they wanted, and he paid the price. But we'll see. I think I'm not sure what your thoughts are on the conservative leadership race. You know, Pierre Polyev seems to be the, the front runner so far, and he's been a lot tougher in confronting media narratives than other leaders have been in that party. But what's what's your sense of where that leadership race is going? Too early to tell, but uh, Pierre Polyev is the only politician that I have come across in Canada who has a grip on numbers. 
Mm -hmm. I say this without being partisan. He he knows his numbers and he knows how to analyze them and how to present them. His problem is that his intensity makes him uh, somewhat unmarketable beyond the base. Mm -hmm. He's is too intense for that. <laughs> so. And again, you know, you don't know what the backroom boys are planning. For example, even when uh, Andrew Shear became the leader, the clear winner at that point was Max. Mm -hmm. And then it was turned in the last phase. Same thing happened here in Ontario when after Patrick Brown was thrown out, uh, Christine Elliott was emerging as the leader. And then uh, there were literally some backroom negotiations because they had announced a big convention in a hotel and all the supporters had gathered mm -hmm. and they said that the decision has been delayed. They waited a couple hours. They had to go back and then in the wee hours it was announced that Doug Ford is the leader. So uh, with respect to Pierre, I don't know how it will go, but bringing the old horses back is a losing formula. So mm -hmm. for people like Peter McKay and Jean Charest to come in the race, if they manage to become the leaders, then it will be a losing formula for uh, conservatives because you need someone who is fresh, who has no association association with the party of the past, who can then make a departure on certain issues without being inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of person who can then uh, breathe some new life. Uh, right now, I see the party as being moribund. Mm -hmm. It is tied down by too many factors. It, it cannot move. And when they tried to move, for example, that carbon pricing oh, yeah. <laughs> disaster of Erin O'Toole, <laughs> I was stunned that someone claiming to be a conservative can bring such a statist policy where the mm -hmm. government needs to know what you are spending money on. It was it was worse than even what the liberals were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So you need a clear break from the past, but with someone who has got enough energy and charisma to win over people from the other side, voters from the other side. I don't see any of them in the running right now. What I do think is interesting about Paul Ayl, though, is that he's been he's talking more to young people than the conservatives have because their their poll numbers among young people are just awful and have been for quite some time. And really, when Trudeau won, that's that was the big difference. The Conservatives got about the same as they had in terms of votes when they won a majority, but just a bunch of new young voters came in uh, in 2015 and voted for the Liberals. Many of them have left seeing Trudeau actually in office. They're not really too pleased. But Polyev, you know, one thing he talks about a lot is, you know, housing prices and how, you know, all the money printing has contributed to that. He talks a lot about cryptocurrency. And then there was a really interesting poll where I think it was Angus Reid, and they'd asked people, uh, they broke it down by age segments, and they asked people if they either sympathized with the, the protests, the trucker protests, or if they had no sympathy at all. And it was about 44% who said they did have sympathy, but among 18 to 34-year-olds, it was 61%, and that was the highest supporting age group. So that's an issue where you had, really for the first time in, I guess, actually I can't even remember any other time, for the first time, certainly in a long time, you had the youngest segment of society more aligned with a conservative viewpoint uh, than any other age group. So that, that could be interesting. And I think Polyev has been playing to that somewhat with his support of the, the convoy and then discussing cryptocurrency. So we'll see. I think he is going to try to revitalize the party uh, with young people. It's, it's going to be tough because the media is going to be going after him every step of the way. 
but uh, that could see some success. Yeah, on the grassroots level, there is this uh, widespread idea on the conservative side that uh, children are so indoctrinated in the education system that they you know, come out leftist. But these things go in uh, swings or maybe cycles. Yeah. Such that at some point, young people's actual experiences outweigh what they have been told. And that's where I think uh, Pierre Polyevre has uh, hit on a good point on uh, housing affordability because, mm-hmm. you know, 18 to 34 age group, yeah. they are uh, the ones to feel it the most. So, yeah, when the pendulum swings back, you are going to see increased support for uh, conservatives. But right now, for the number of years that they have been trying to uh, mimic the policies of the liberals who are mimicking policies of NDP. So there's no meaningful <laughs> difference. Socialism for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not going to work long term mm-hmm. and even short term for the conservatives. They have to strike out, say this is where we are. And again, you know, uh, in popular uh, imagination, voters are thought of as uh, unidimensional. Mm-hmm. Whereas people are complex, even though they may disagree with you even vehemently on one issue, you can win them over on some other issue. You have to make it the defining issue for that voter. Whereas the focus is on making something the defining issue of the election, Mm -hmm. which is millions of voters. So they have to find a way of uh, fine tuning their uh, appeal to different voters on different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I noticed the, the, to the credit politically of the left is they're always campaigning, right? The left is always acting as if they're in an election, right? It's conservatives, it tends to be, okay, there's an election, I'll give some money, I'll volunteer a little bit, and then it's over, right? So even when conservatives win, the left is still campaigning. So they're still shifting society more and more to the left. And so the conservatives win an election, they go back four years later and like, whoa, the country's way more left wing. What's going on? And so you, you make a good point. They've been just trying to move to the left constantly, but it's it's they're being pulled, right? They're never going to get it there. You know, the, the NDP and liberals, they're never going to let the conservatives be as left wing as they are, right? They're always going to be more socialist and more statist. So if the conservatives keep going in that direction, well, then the whole country just becomes more and more socialist. And so... I think, you know, there's a few politicians in the Conservative Party who are starting to realize that, that they have to provide a real contrast. But I don't know, there's still a lot of splits in that party, and I'm not sure I'm not sure if they've fully figured it out yet. Yeah, I wrote an article about something that you said. Uh, I called it belated bursts. Mm-hmm. And uh, my main point in that article is that conservatives mm-hmm. campaign only during campaign periods. Mm-hmm. Uh, rest of the time, they are not in anybody's, uh, you know, vision. So you appear at the last minute. I'm reminded of a, of a 400 meters race, or maybe it was 800 meters that happened in the 90s in one of the European capitals, could have been Helsinki, mm-hmm. where the reigning world champion of Kenya, I was living in Kenya at the time, Billy Conchella. <clears throat> he was expected to win, but 800 meters is the trickiest of races because you have to time your burst very fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, hmm. he, he didn't time it well. And <laughs> even though he arrived as an express train, this was mm-hmm. in the words of the commentator, he arrived at the finish line as an express train. He still finished third. Hmm. 
Thankfully, mm. his uh, you know fellow countryman Paul Ruto had been going all along. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be the pacemaker, but he didn't mm-hmm. drop out mm-hmm. and uh, just kept going and won gold. So you have to time your burst properly. And in in politics, you have to be at it all the time at uh, varying degrees of intensity. Mm-hmm. So that's a crucial mistake that they make when the campaign rolls around. Suddenly, some guy says that he is a candidate for my riding. I don't know him from Adam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there has to be some recognition of the name, you know, some familiarity that is not there. Yeah, they just think they can, you know, they, they raise a lot of money and they just think, oh, we'll just spend all the money during the election and we'll, we'll win, but it hasn't worked out well for them. So, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, at the grassroots level, again, there is this uh, tendency of calling everybody else, you know, who doesn't vote conservative as low info voter or, you know, people who love freebies, etc. That is not, that is not the reality or maybe that is not the whole reality. People may be informed less about politics, but whose job is it to inform them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> if I'm if I'm uh, trying to buy a product, the company that I'm you know I know more about, I'm going to buy their product. Mm-hmm. So it's again a failure of the party, not not to be laid at the feet of the voter. Yeah, it's like yeah, you know, a private company can't say, well, I mean, the public is just stupid because they didn't buy our product. Well. Yeah. That's what you think of the public. Maybe that's why they don't want to buy your product, right? People can sense when there's disdain for, you know, different views. And speaking of disdain for different views, I wonder if if you have any thoughts on what you think is going to happen, you know, with the protest and with what Trudeau has done. Because I think just today Quebec has uh, announced that they're scrapping their vaccine passport. So I think on March 14th or 15th, I think the 14th they're going to get rid of it. So it's it seems that as Trudeau becomes more and more authoritarian, many of the provinces are starting to go in the other direction. Do you think that's a response somewhat to what he's doing? Do you think it's a response to the protest or do you think maybe just a mix of all those things? There are a couple of things here. One is, of course, to take the wind out of the sail of the protest. Mm-hmm. Because even after the declaration of uh, emergency measures, that protest was going to remain. So that ways have to be found to uh, you know, reduce that uh, support level. That is number one. But my primary concern here is how long are these emergency measures going to be around? Because my understanding is that the uh, reporting requirement for FinTrack is uh, for keeps. Mm-hmm. So how does that affect the average Canadian? Those two weeks are the... to slow the spread. I'm sure it'll just be two weeks and then we'll be back to normal in no time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, two years later, we are still uh, in the two weeks to flatten the curve phase. Yeah. So, and these, these uh, you know, power is an addictive thing. I mean, mm-hmm. we are all human. I'm not blaming yeah. an individual here. I'm susceptible to the same weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Power is an addictive thing. Once somebody, someone has got the power, they are very reluctant to let it go. So those are my main concerns because, again, coming back to what kind of a society we are becoming. You know, if we have more and more uh, statist sentiment in the society, which is different from, you know, the government being statist. Mm-hmm. As If there is a support, uh, widespread support among the people for this kind of statism because it is justified on whatever ground, 
then it's very difficult to come out of that. And it's uh, going to be a stifling experience for many. I know a lot of people are leaving Canada because of that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you, you're getting more people via immigration who, first of all, don't have all these backgrounds, so they can't be faulted for not knowing this. Yeah. And secondly, maybe they still find life in Canada better, so they may support it. So the percentage of independent thinkers or people who think that we should be less statist goes down over mm -hmm. time via the exit of previous citizens and uh, the arrival of new ones. So I'm seeing, uh, you know, the character of our society changing fundamentally over the next few years. Yeah, I'm always amazed by how many people in Canada seem to have, it, it's almost like their, their mind is restricted in, in that if the government doesn't do something, then it can't be done. It, 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 I find it so strange where it's like, oh, we need to help this group of people. Oh, the government has to do something. Well, if you want to help them, you're free to start a company or a charity or organize or get like-minded people together. And people, they somehow don't notice that. They're just, no, the government has to do it or nothing will be done. And it's almost as if, people they don't like anything voluntary right they, they don't like the idea that okay if i care about something i'm responsible to do something about that but instead they just think no i'm just going to force everybody to do that and you see that i think covid that that attitude has really emerged uh, more than i think people thought it would and it, it's been this whole like i'm scared of the virus so all of society has to be reoriented around my own fear right and that's the attitude a lot of people have. It's, it's, you know, they could just stay home. They could wear a mask all the time. They can be super careful, but that's not enough for people, right? It's no, everyone has to be forced to do this. And you talk about power being addictive. I think something with the vaccine passport is, I think for a lot of people, that was the most status they've had in their life, right? You know, maybe they weren't popular in high school or, you know, in, in their job. But now they finally, there's a club, and it, almost literally, there's a club they can get into and other people can't, right? You know, you show your status, here's my card, oh, you can come in, but no, all those, the, the other people can't. And so for the first time in their life, they felt like they were part of something like that. And now all of a sudden, oh, that's being taken away. And you see people on Twitter saying, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go to restaurants now that they're letting unvaccinated people in. And it's just something very disturbing has happened to this country where people, you know. I, yeah, apart from I, you know, the status. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's also something that I call dominance of the finickiest. It's mm. <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So if you are more finicky about things, you want things to be exactly in a particular way, no matter how much uh, demand is put on others. If mm -hmm. that segment happens to be dominant in society, then you have uh, this kind of issues where, you know, and uh, this was really an unpleasant surprise for me to see in a magazine like Maclean's where uh, the debate last year was happening around people who are unvaccinated and all and the kind of language that was printed in that prominent magazine I wouldn't use it anywhere that's the kind of I mean it went through the editor also who saw no mm -hmm. issue <laughs> using that language so that's you know again it it boils down to status as you say because once a person feels that they have status, they think that they can uh, dictate or preach to anyone. And especially someone who has a different view, they must be spoken of in a derogatory way. So that is, 
I mean, not conducive to good dialogue, first of all, and uh, you are only going to deepen the divide. You are not going to win anyone over by calling them names, mm-hmm. especially in foul language. So that that's a major problem here. Yeah, I've seen some of that too. The the status issue with I think the response, particularly in Ottawa, to the protests, where it's you know. For the last two years, you've had a lot of people, especially now with the vaccine passports and what they're doing to truckers, you've had people in the working class who've been thrown out of their jobs, who've watched their businesses disintegrate, who can't earn money anymore. And that was just that was totally fine. Right. Politicians didn't seem to care. The second there's any inconvenience whatsoever in a government city, you know, in among government workers, you know, the, the machinery of the state, then, oh, it's the biggest emergency in the world. And so I think I, I think a lot of people are seeing that where it's. There's certain groups that the law applies to, certain groups they don't, certain groups that the government cares about, and other groups that they don't. And that leads us to a very dangerous place because when people lose confidence, as I think they already have in, you know, whether it's law and order, the fairness of the judiciary, fairness of the laws, uh, you know, whether the government actually represents everybody. I don't think anybody believes anymore the government actually represents all of us. It's clear they only represent some people then you really do start to see society start to break down. And I think that's starting to happen to a certain extent. And I'm wondering, you know, politically, the temptation, of course, for the conservatives, whenever they do win, is just going to be to use these powers against their opponents, right? I mean, they could easily say, oh, well, if, if you're against the energy sector and your organization took money from a foreign country, then, oh, that's, you know, you're committing treason or you're committing a you know, crime against the country by trying to shut down our oil industry with foreign money. So we're going to shut your bank accounts down. And I don't think people who support Trudeau and people on the left have really taken that into account that the powers that they're gleefully imposing on other people one day will be imposed on them. Absolutely. You know, speaking of this uh, stepmotherly treatment, if I can mm-hmm. put it that way, yeah. It has shifted from being based on geography to being based on class. Mm. And that class is again rejiggled, not to be understood in the classical sense. Yeah. So Western alienation was always there, or at least for a long time. That was because of their perception of stepmotherly treatment from Ottawa. Now that has shifted and it is no longer strictly based on geography, although that part still remains. But now the stepmotherly treatment is in terms of which uh, ideology you subscribe to. If you are with us, then you get all the preferences and privileges. If you are against us, then we will discriminate against you. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a very important shift to observe over the next little while. Because unless it is corrected quickly, it will entrench itself and then become, you know, part of the structure. Where you saw, you know, prominent people saying that uh, uh, unvaccinated uh, individuals should be made to pay for their health care or should be denied health care altogether. Mm-hmm. So that is pure and simple discrimination. In a country where healthcare can only be provided via the government, although all the entities running it are privately owned, <laughs> it is provided via government. <laughs> to exclude people based on what they think is, uh, I can only say it is ideological. And that is discrimination. Yeah. And if that becomes entrenched, then you are in big trouble as a society. 
Yeah, and the attitude too is like it's you sense from people like Trudeau and Freeland, it's that they expect people to know their place, right? It's that kind of arrogance from the top, like, oh, know your place in society. And so they've almost acted as if, you know, they can do whatever they want to unvaccinated people, but they're not allowed to, you know, push back or stand up for themselves, right? And it's not just unvaccinated people, but people who don't agree with forced vaccinations. You know, I see a lot of people saying, oh, well, 90% of Canadians are vaccinated, but that doesn't mean all vaccinated people agree with what's happening. I mean, I've got two vaccinations. I don't agree with the making it mandatory and what they're doing to people. And so this kind of attitude where you're just supposed to take whatever the government does to you and you can't resist or push back at all. And it's so interesting though, that, as you say, that only applies to one group of people, right? It only applies to the people the government criticizes or the people who aren't in the right group. I mean, we remember Justin Trudeau years ago, he praised, uh, not praised, but he, he defended kind of the, the Boston bomber. And he said, oh, well, this is what happens. And this is someone who had deliberately killed people in a terrorist attack. And he said, oh, well, this is this is what happens when you know someone feels marginalized and excluded. So under, he has understanding somehow for, by the way, a foreign person, not someone even in Canada, a foreign person who committed a terrorist attack. But then when it's his own citizens who have a legitimate reason to be upset, he won't even meet with them or talk to them or give them any legitimacy whatsoever. So I think people, you know, I think a few people in the Liberal Party, obviously Joel Lightbound, the MP from Quebec who criticized it, I think some of them are maybe starting to realize that the way Trudeau is acting is quite dangerous. But he still seems to have you know, a fair amount of people in the country who seem just quite pleased with the way he's dividing the country and seem to think it's the right thing somehow. You have hit upon a very good point, Spencer, because at the time I remember clearly his uh, his response was that we have to get to the root causes. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so here is two guys who have actually carried out a terrorist act and the desire is to look for the root causes of what made them do that. Mm. By the same token, if you are calling Although that appellation is wrong, but if you are calling the protesters terrorists, you have to look for the root causes of what makes them do what they are doing. Mm -hmm. Even by that inappropriate terminology, a better approach was required. There is a lot of lampooning of Trudeau going on in international press right now because when it comes to issues happening in other countries, he is all preachy and wise. And well, India, the same he, was issues. Big, he was a big supporter of protests in India, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think and, right, uh, they're, they're not too pleased with him right now. <laughs> yeah, so, but again, you know, the whole strategy, I think this was a strategy to basically delegitimize them by calling them names and uh, mm -hmm. being sure that media and partisan supporters will uh, go along with that. I have... I don't think I have seen any uh, opinion piece in our legacy media which takes a contrary line to what the government was saying about the protesters. There may have been one or two here and there, but largely legacy media was parroting what the government was saying. So they managed to create an atmosphere where a crackdown was seen as something uh, justifiable. And that's what they did. But again, the collateral damage of this is going to be huge beyond the immediate impact on the protest itself. Because as I said, the you know financial side of it is going to stick around. Uh, anybody can uh, be made the target of that. And uh, 
you don't want any administrative apparatus to have that kind of authority because now it is left largely to the banks to have oversight over such complaints and if they decide not to then that's the end of it mm-hmm. so you know as a, as an individual you are at the receiving end of a very unjust system and that was put in place by the government itself so there is no recourse if an organization on its own does something like this then you can you have other legal means of having that redressed but when the government itself has put in place then there is there is no recourse mm-hmm. yeah and you know i think they're at the point where they you know you, you made a good point earlier when you talked about how narrative spread right how it goes from you know small narrative and then it just works all the way up and kind of becomes the the dominant narrative in the country and you saw that at the beginning with the flags right i mean you had one or two people carrying you know like terrible flags right people shouldn't be carrying those obviously but you had and funny the only people wearing masks at the event tended to be the people carrying the most controversial flags right what an interesting coincidence that the the only people wearing masks were the ones carrying those right it kind of makes you wonder you know who they actually were and whether the government's involved but it's interesting you saw how the the rhetoric changed right it started off saying oh one or two flags was seen and then they started saying multiple flags and then you saw people just start tweeting like oh you know protesters carrying swastikas and confederate flags as if everyone was carrying them and then you look at the actual photos and it's all almost all canadian flags a few us flags and but as you say about the the media right the, the established media or legacy media not only do they not push back against the the false narratives but they share it right they're the main propagators of it and so all of that really kind of you know lines up with what the government's doing with you know internet censorship and the way they keep bailing out media companies right i mean they want only their narrative to, to be shared and i don't think canadians realize or a lot of canadians don't realize how close that brings us to being really an authoritarian country a country where anyone who doesn't share the government narrative gets silenced and where the media isn't really independent it's just a tool of the government and they're doing it without officially making the media i mean it's it doesn't all it, you don't look at you know, ctv and say oh canadian state media you think oh ctv it's still a private company well that's fine but the more and more they're dependent on government money the more they share the government narrative yeah whoever pays the piper calls the tune basically mm-hmm. so it doesn't matter if it's a privately owned company or our state broadcaster according to cbc now saying freedom makes you a white supremacist yeah. i mean i think of all the people in the third world that were colonized and fought for their freedom mm-hmm. i didn't know they were white supremacists and yeah, i probably be surprised the, to hear that yeah. trying to <laughs> overthrow the rule of white people <laughs> i mean you know it gets ludicrous but they don't care mm-hmm. because they know that they have the podium and uh, only their voice is going to prevail and c10 has been reintroduced now as c11 which yeah. is going to be another massive setback to canadian society i wrote about that basically you know there is a bit of uh, interesting historical background here when printing press was invented um, the seat of uh, religious authority in islam was in turkey in istanbul and the chief cleric there uh, declared that this is uh, not acceptable in islam 
it was it is believed by historians that this was primarily to safeguard the occupations and livelihoods of people who were writing manuscripts by hand but this one fatwa set uh, the muslim world behind by a couple of centuries maybe longer mm. because without printing press that, that was the cutting edge technology of the time where information and knowledge used to spread and whenever it comes to such technologies you will have good with the bad mm -hmm. yeah, of course the moment uh, video cassettes came in porn took off mm -hmm. right so you will have good with the bad and you have to constantly try and weed out the bad <clears throat> but uh, here again what they are saying is that there is a lot of hateful stuff on the internet and therefore we need to control it again how does this look like at the point of implementation because if some lady sitting in an apartment in india or bangkok or wherever wants to put out cooking videos on youtube mm -hmm. she's not going to register with crtc <laughs> she's doing it out yes. of the joy of doing it right they mm -hmm. don't even do it for monetizing they just mm -hmm. feel happy that they have put out their uh, whatever they know for mm -hmm. everybody in the world to uh, try and learn from yeah so if crtc starts getting 1000 applications a day for all the social media users do they have the capability to process that volume nobody mm -hmm. has thought about it again you know the whole debate is about hateful messages and stuff like that it's going to you know i was once in a facebook group of white supremacists i don't know how i got in there i don't remember well <laughs> but i took them on on a daily basis because they had their uh, wacky ideas of you know 97% of all the scientists in human history were white mm. so my question was when does history begin mm. <laughs> because in other parts of the world people were having very advanced civilization when europeans were living in caves and mud huts mm -hmm. so you have to decide when your history begins then we can talk about the percentage I used to take them on every day from personal experience I know that their numbers are vanishingly small and their ideas are so ludicrous that beyond that tiny circle nobody is going to accept them you cannot make canada back into a european society because there are now too many people of non european origin living here already they don't have any solution i used to keep asking them what is the solution for the non whites who are here and what do you do about the mixed race people they have no because it's an ideology mm -hmm. it doesn't perform on logic they have one idea and they keep repeating it let them repeat it they are not going to get anywhere to stop that small number of people from saying what they want to say you cannot shut down the whole internet because 99.9% of the communication there is either benign or useful yeah you know it's it's interesting that people seem to have this fear of freedom when all the evidence shows that just letting people you know share their ideas even if they're terrible ideas is is better than suppressing them i mean you have the example i use of course probably the country with the most free speech maybe there's a few exceptions but probably the most would be the united states And that's a country where you know many places legally you can still have a, a clan rally and they were also one of the first countries in the world to elect a racial minority as their president right i mean it's not a coincidence that both those things happen in the same country because they let everyone be free and share ideas back and forth and so i think people you know everyone seems to think that freedom is good for them like oh i can handle freedom 
I'm responsible enough, but everybody else, no, that's the problem. So I should just have the power to restrict people. But the problem is everybody thinks that, right? Everyone thinks they can handle it and other people can't. So, you know, you just have to let people share their ideas and let the chips fall where they may. And it's generally better to let them do that than to suppress them because it's always going to be an ideology one way or the other, whether it's what people are sharing, whether it's what's being suppressed, that's all based on what one group of people thinks is acceptable or unacceptable. There's also an interesting, you know, kind of idea I've been thinking of too is if you look at the response from the left or from you know status like Trudeau to different protests, there's almost kind of a strange racial component to it. And it's almost I don't know if you call it reverse racism or kind of it's tough to describe, but it's like if there's white people protesting, it seems that a lot of politicians treat it as if, okay, well, you know, they obviously know what they're doing and they'll be held fully responsible. There's no root causes, there's no excuse, right? But if it's any other racial group protesting, it's like, oh, they don't really know what they're doing and they're not really responsible. And so we have to find out what's causing it and make sure everything's okay. And it's, you're almost taking agency away from people, you know, from minorities in that way. You're saying, oh, you don't really know what you're, what you're doing. And that gets taken to the absurd when you see uh, in New York City, for example, where there's been a rash of hate crimes against Asian people. And to a large extent, it's been black people committing the crimes. And then you see people say, well, actually, this is just uh, it's because of the society itself is white supremacist. So people are taking that on. It's like it's just just insane thinking. Right. But it's it's a denial of personal responsibility. Like if you truly believe everybody's equal or has equal opportunity and should be treated equally under the law, then everyone is equally responsible for their actions, regardless of their race or their background. Right. Everyone's an individual. They made a choice to do something. And there's consequences, but it seems like on the left, there's certainly an attitude that only certain races or certain groups are held responsible. And ironically, that's actually quite a racist way to look at things. I agree fully. See, there is a very subtle form of racism at play here because it tells me as a person of color that you don't have agency. Mm -hmm. That whatever, if I'm doing something that is otherwise considered bad, I'm doing it because of historical reasons of oppression by the white man or whatever, colonialism, choose your term. Yeah. As if I am incapable of overcoming that trauma, assuming I had it, and I'm forced to act in a certain way because of the centuries of history the last three or four centuries. Mm -hmm. It robs me of my agency. You see a lot of people in the BIPOC community who keep saying this, mm -hmm. that, you know, we are not into victim Olympics. We want to strike out on our own. Whatever our abilities are, we'll achieve that. And we are capable of taking care of our interests. And if we aren't, then we will struggle for that. Mm -hmm. But don't uh, rob us of this agency where you justify every bad act by a certain individual based on the race they are. So that is a very subtle form of racism. And again, it, it works it, its way into our elections also. Mm -hmm. I've written about this, that most of the immigrants who come here, they had a very fraught relationship with the state before they came here. Sometimes it was outright hostile or at least uh, not on amicable terms. And conservatives are painted as, as being the equivalent of those states. Mm 
that if they are in government, then they will harm your interest. Interesting. Notwithstanding the mm -hmm. evidence mm -hmm. of several decades of conservative rule <laughs> where this thing hasn't happened. And if we take the starting point as late 1960s when immigration from non-European countries was openly allowed, then we have had two uh, governments of almost a decade each tenure that have been in office and they haven't gone out and harmed any uh, people of color. Mm -hmm. But this is a marketing success, I'll grant them that, that they have convinced a lot of people, including uh, immigrants, that uh, conservatives will harm your interests and therefore we can be your protector. That is racism to me. I mean, yeah. this is a democratic free society. I am perfectly capable of protecting my interest. I don't need you as a middleman or as a guard outside my door to make sure that nobody breaks in. No, I'm capable of doing that. But that is a marketing success, which is another thing that conservatives haven't got around to even acknowledging, let alone addressing. Yeah, it's they keep trying to play the same game as the liberals, right? So it's like, oh, we'll, we'll be more sensitive and we'll play into the narrative of, you know, protecting people. And it's so interesting, you know, of course, the States is a different country than Canada, but there are certainly lessons there. And it, it was so fascinating to watch, you know, the last U.S. election, if you look at kind of the, the, the breakdown of who voted for who. And you had four years of Donald Trump being attacked by the media as the most racist and, you know, fascist, you know, Hitler, blah, 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 or he's Putin. They went back and forth. He's Hitler or he's Putin, you know, just, just foolishness. And yet he did better among Hispanic voters, especially, than any presidential candidate for the Republican Party in quite some time. Better than Mitt Romney, better than John McCain, I think even better than George W. Bush. And I think you're seeing... You know, something similar in Canada where you look at a lot of the people, the Freedom Convoy, people of all backgrounds, they're not just going to vote for someone because they claim that their opponent is racist. I think people are, some people are starting to wake up and realize, look, you're just being used as a political tool at that point, right? If, if, if someone says to you, I'm going to treat you like an adult, I'm going to let you be as free as possible, you know, I'm going to cut your taxes and, you know, you're on your own, make your own decisions. You're an adult, you know, live a good life, do the best you can. And someone else says, oh, you poor innocent soul, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to save you from all the bad right wingers out there. I think there's people starting to push back and say, you know what? I, I am an ally. I don't need to be treated like a kid. I don't need the government to be a parent. And so I think conservatives need to realize that and realize that you need to go completely against the liberal narrative, not just try to copy it and tweak it a little bit. That's right. I mean, the best way is to tell people that this is what is happening, that you are being treated as kids. Mm -hmm. And there are no dangers here. And Canada has been a good country and constantly improving. Whatever weaknesses we had and we still have, mm -hmm. we have improved upon those over time. And that has happened regardless of party affiliation or ideological affiliation. So there's no need to fear. Whoever says that there is a great danger and I can be your protector is doing it for their own gain. Mm. They're not doing it for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you know, it's it's kind of the problem, the broader problem in Canadian society is people who are looking to the government to take responsibility for them as opposed to take responsibility themselves. And so, you know, it, it's it's 
And you, know, you made a good point earlier about how facts, I think an article, actually one of your articles I was reading yesterday, and you talked about how to a lot of people, the facts don't matter, right? You're talking about, I think, debating with people and you share some facts and they just blocked you, right? Mm. It's it's not, they don't even push back. It's just like, oh, well, uh, you're blocked. Yeah, don't share any facts with me. And, you know, that attitude is really, you know, quite prevalent. And I think until people are willing to accept that people have different opinions and that we get to a better place as a society by debating. I mean, it's really, it's kind of a, it's, if you look at society as an organism, it's an organism learning to adapt to reality by sharing ideas. And if you block that flow of information, then more mistakes are made, serious mistakes. That's really why dictatorships don't work in the long run, because you have basically a single point of failure, right? You know, the dictator has to make every decision completely right. And if they make one big mistake, then the whole country's made that mistake and there's a huge problem, right? China with the one child policy. I mean, they, in the long run, that's probably one of the biggest historic mistakes of all time mm -hmm. because they've severely reduced their, their future economic growth. And so the idea of a democracy is that we make a lot of little mistakes and none of them are fatal and they're spread out throughout society. And then you correct and you, you learn and you, you figure out the right way to go. And it looks messy, and to a lot of people, that messiness is somehow scary, right? It's like, oh, there's too much debate, there are too many different ideas, and they just want, it's like what Trudeau said, oh, he likes China because they can get the big things done. Well, sure, but I mean, the big things often include, you know, horrific crimes against humanity, right? And so I think we, we want a society that is messy, that does have a lot of debate and different opinion, and I think people need to have enough respect for each other to be willing to listen to that and, and accept it. Yeah, we have reached a point where having a different opinion from the prevalent narrative makes you an evil person. Mm -hmm. And that is probably the biggest shortcoming as a society, where if you are not able to challenge ideas, then uh, you're going to increase the vulnerability of the system. It is, as you said, better to face smaller challenges Mm -hmm. then to suppress them and then finally when the big one comes there is no support structure in place to absorb the shock yeah very true well this has been a you know really great discussion uh, i'm sure we'll have to do it again soon uh i really want to thank you for joining us here you know, the first episode of the spencer fernando show uh where can people follow your writing what's the best place for them to go darshanmaharaja.ca that is my website and uh, I write articles on current issues and usually they are, uh, you know, they include my other experiences in other countries. Sometimes they don't, but uh, I hope they'll find it uh, worth their time. And you have a donation page on your website as well? I do, yes. Okay. Well, I encourage everyone to donate. Go to darshanmaharaja.ca. Share his articles, follow him on Twitter as well, and donate to his website. You know, he's doing great work for the country. He is, as you've seen in this discussion, he brings a perspective that you don't often hear, but that we certainly need to hear. And we're all very grateful for his wisdom and thank him for joining us today. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you for having me. Take care.